Dr. Lynn Morrell spent her childhood suffering from neglect, emotional abuse, familial alcoholism, and mentally ill caregivers. Wow. Over the next several years, Dr. Lynn escaped an abusive relationship and found her true love, only to lose him in a car accident. This is only part of Dr. Lynn's amazing story of healing. You do not want to miss this today. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Grant. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, and with me today is Dr. Lynn Morrell. Now, her story, as I just mentioned in the top of this show, is much greater than the few sentences that I shared there. She is going to have you on the edge of your seat wondering how she survived all this. And believe me, you do not want to miss this positive, exciting, incredible adventure that Dr. Lynn is going to share with us today. So let us start with your childhood and how you coped. Well, that's a really loaded question. And <laughs> I, I would say it's the grace of God. I discovered reading at a very young age. Uh, my aunt and uncle raised me till I was five. And when I went back to go to my parents to go to school, they said, Lynn, if you can read this book, we'll take, Uncle and I will take you to Maine to visit your aunt Dot. And I was a voracious reader. And so I read Pocahontas. And it was such a sweet story to me. I still remember the title. And, and it's, you know, 65 plus years later. So I became a bookworm at a very early age. And I coped by climbing the tree across the street where nobody would bother me or even see me. And as I got older, climbing the ladder to the roof of the house and pulling the ladder up. So that's how I coped. Um, I became an introvert and a bookworm, and I didn't speak much. What happened at 15? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> God gave me a break, so to speak. My younger sister and my sister-in-law wanted to take judo lessons because there was allegedly somebody sneaking into people's houses. And so my sister-in-law never went. My parents insisted I be the chaperone to my 13-year-old sister to, st to study judo, of all things. Now, imagine a size 15, chubby, uncoordinated bookworm getting picked on by bullies, being dragged to a judo class. Well, it was life-changing. I discovered I was good at something. I could throw the guys at 15. 
And about three months later, my judo teacher, who became pretty much a surrogate dad for me, said, I'd like you to start teaching some of the beginners. These were all men. Uh That began a love affair with the martial arts that I still have more than 57 years later. And that literally gave me something to, like, hold on to that I was good at. I had a family that adored me, all the guys in the class. There were only three women in the class. And yet they were all kind to me. My judo teacher would, my mom was committed at one point, and the sanitarium was down the street, so I'd visit her. My judo teacher, we'd sit on the porch with six Dobermans and standard bread poodles would lick my face (laughs) and just listen to me cry. And and he was truly an angel in my life. Aw. Isn't that wonderful that in the midst of all that trauma that you can have that reprieve? Oh, for sure. And, you know, after three months, my younger sister quit and the car rides disappeared. I was so committed that I found people that would pick me up and give me a ride. And, you know, sometimes my dad would be home to take me, but more often than not, I would beg, borrow, or steal rides to class. And um, I made good friends. The pharmacist became a friend of mine. Long story about how I had a a gallbladder rupture at 17. I'd stop and eat chocolate chocolate M&Ms, and I'd have a gallbladder attack, and I figured it out myself when I was uh, 17. Wow. So I I had angels, a lot of angels. Mm -hmm. No kidding. So then you get married. Yay. (laughs) Things are going to change. You're married for 13 years, and what happened? I met him when I was 17 on a blind date with my brother and his wife, and he was the love of my life. And we were married at least 13 years, That it was very, very happy, and I got pregnant, and he became bipolar overnight, just like my mom. Oh, my goodness. So what I thought was a marriage forever and ever and ever turned very violent. And when I had my child, he was off the deep end. He was having an affair with one of the students. Everybody in the small town is, Lynn, who's that woman with your husband? And um, I literally left when he strangled me and in front of our daughter. Oh, and I found the courage to move out. It took me a very long time to forgive myself Yes, in that and not knowing how to get out because he was my everything. He got me away from my crazy parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I went from the pan to the fire eventually. But in the meantime, I had quite a few years where, you know, he'd say, I need to take my little flower out to dinner. We had a really good mm-hmm. relationship, so I thought, until I got pregnant. And then all hell broke loose. Isn't that strange? That it would turn that direction. It, you know, it is. And, you know, I've gone on to get a couple of master's degrees and a doctorate. I love to learn. And sometimes when you have a husband who has mother issues and you get pregnant, you become the mother. Oh, my goodness. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that turned it uh, almost overnight. Huh. He had never cheated on me until until I was pregnant. And uh, it became a really great gift because... Had he not been violent with me, I would probably still be with uh-huh. him. But doing it in front of our daughter, that was something I couldn't put up with. I would not let her see that. So, so you were able to get out of that. Yep. And then, years later, you fell in love. I did. I met. And you were happily married. 
And then what happened? Well, David died in a crash, and um, I waited about 11 years after, after he died, and I met another man who I absolutely fell in love with. So my first husband, I left. I remarried this wonderful man named David who was committed to personal growth. We laughed. He taught me how to play. He owned a sailboat business. And um, when he died, I was pretty devastated. Um, and, I, and I went into a depression, and I had what they call Lyme disease and chronic you know, fibromyalgia. My mother died in a house fire. Um, six, oh, my goodness. Six weeks before David died. And um, so it, I had a 13-month period where literally every six, six weeks, something of significance happened. Uh, sued by Social Security, field audited by the IRS. I won both cases. Um, my daughter was grabbed by her dad. Uh, God bless him, you know, grabbed her out of my hands at school, and I didn't see her till she was 21. So that's just a couple of the things. Yes. You know, just a few more. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right, so in reflection, just at that part of your life up to this point, what were you going through emotionally? Oh, my gosh. I was so in my head, Carol. It's the only way that I could survive. I became an intellectual nerd. Um, when David died, missing memories came back as a result of the plane, of the, um, the crash that he had. Hmm. And the um, challenge was that I had a lot of emotions coming up, a lot of anger, a lot of angst. I confronted my aunt. I said, why did you leave me there? She goes, oh, honey, if I'd have let myself know what was going on, I would have killed them. That was her comment. Wow. And the thing about David is we were so compatible and so easy to get along with. He taught me how to laugh and play. And, and the interesting thing is what I've come to believe is we all pretty much know our time of passing. So about three months before David died, he started becoming more reclusive. And I said, hey, Dave, you're going to come with me to Canada? I was asked to be a midwife for one of my clients up near Hudson Bay, Canada. He goes, honey, I can't see myself there. We died 10 days oh, before I oh went to help goodness. deliver that baby. And um, I got there late because of the funeral, but I did get to spend time there. And I would say, Carol, that I had angels along the way. When I was in my deepest pit, someone would show up. And when David died, I mean, I wasn't able to really see people. I was uh, doing consulting and I ran a retreat center. And I took a year off to just get myself together. And this woman called me out of the clear blue, one of my angels, and said, I heard you speak last week in Elmira. I really would like to hire you to show me how to be to be a healer or do healing work. And so I became friends with them. And her, her mother, who was, you know, French, um, cooked dinners. They made me a frequent guest at their house. They fed me. She did energy work on me. And I literally found a family I had never experienced before. And um, they actually cared for me. At one point, Claudine hired me to do some stuff on her computer because I wasn't up to seeing people. I couldn't see people uh-huh. in consciousness unless I was in working form and had dealt with my stuff. And I, I can say that one of the things that had kept me going through my life to this point is at one point, 
um, I think it was after I left my first husband, but before I met David, we were at a, a prayer group and we were studying the Old Testament. And we were all sitting in a circle. It's the first and only time I actually went to them. And the woman said, if you could be anybody in, in the Old Testament, who would you emulate? And I said, I'd like the wisdom of Solomon. Well, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I've dealt with just about every trauma known to humanity that in the people I've worked with. And yet it didn't kill me. I chose to, to at some point, let go of the victim. Like, mm-hmm. yes. kill me. And I started to emulate, why is this happening for me? Okay. And, and when my home burned down, this is shortly before David died, my retreat center actually, um, I, I realized that no matter what happened, I would come out stronger than I was before. And um, in, in the midst of the house fire, I was comforting the man that actually set my house on fire. You know, they, he burned it down by trying to fix it by heating up my wood stove. And I literally became in more equanimity that things were happening to help me be a greater vessel because I did want to serve. When I was little, I was strangled um, a couple of times. And when I was out of my body, I was five years old. The guy was raping my sister in the basement. And um, I walked in on it, and he got scared and chased me under the staircase behind the water cooler and shook me. And I was out of my body. Believe it or not, I'm looking at this little five-year-old kid is looking at herself being shook, and I'm thinking, I don't want to be here. That was your means of escape, right? Yeah. That Well, I could have escaped if I died. And um, when I was three, I was rescued from a burning building that I didn't remember until my relatives told me. And the firemen came in and rescued me. And so, I, you know, those traumas were not accessible to me until right. I was much right. older. Right. And, you know, it's like my sense is, you know, I got the wisdom of Solomon. I don't know the answer, but can you help me? Mm-hmm. So I turned those tragedies into if somebody comes to me, and I've seen thousands of people in the last 40 years, like I say, wow, I don't know what you're going through, but are you experiencing anything like this, say if their house burned down or if they right, lost their right. spouse? They'll say, I don't know what you're going for through, but I'm here to listen. And then at the appropriate time, I'll say something. Oh, my God, I never thought about that. I still have my two children left. I need to be there for them. You know, whatever the issue is, I love to say I don't know, Carol, because that's the strongest position That's right. any of us could ever take. Right. I don't know everything. And I like to say I know nothing except what comes to me through grace. And, you know, what I mean is that I don't know is that I don't know exactly what's going on in the person in front of me or the group in front of me. So I take the time to just be present, like with myself, with trusting that having lived through these things and having found a, a modicum of peace, and, and my peace grows stronger every year, but saying that I don't know that I don't know, what I'm doing is I'm opening myself to an intuitive intuitive wisdom that's within us that can be accessed. And in, in my case, I went from being victim, why is this happening to me, to having an aha one moment when I forget if it was a ferry crash or a plane crash or whatever it was. And I thought, oh, my God, 
we all go through some kind of trauma, some kind of a crucible where we're forged, and either we become negative or we, for me, it was a conscious choice. I don't like how I feel when I'm complaining. And I thought, what would happen if I could find something in the middle of the darkness? So for me, it was taking walks in nature. I had a stream across the street at my retreat center. You know, I would go down there and jump in the freezing cold water and have a hot bath back at the house. I would I would do my Tai Chi. I would find people that maybe I could be of service to, you know, that were having a hard time, whether it was young, a lot of young people actually, or, or the elderly who needed someone. So I actually became a servant in, in a way that having lived through what I lived through, having gone through, you know, Kubler-Ross talks about the stages of death, but actually there are stages of grief. Yes. There's, yes. there's the upset. There's the rage. It's not fair to the profound grief. Even if you didn't like the person that, mm-hmm. that died, that was your ex-husband that you couldn't stand, you would you would begin to nurture and plant the seed of compassion. Right. And when I say I don't know, I don't know what they're going to, but I have a pretty good idea mm-hmm. sitting with someone. So I never say, well, you need to do this. I'll say something like, have you ever considered that when you're feeling really depressed in the morning, if when you opened your eyes, you could look around you and maybe you had flowers on the dresser or the sky was blue or you had a call from your niece or your nephew you know, those are little things. Those little things can can act as a fulcrum to create huge results. And all we have to do is to be willing to be willing to look at what's happened to us as being what's happened for us. I would not have been able to touch as many thousands of people as I right. had I not woken up one day and said, you know, I'm tired of feeling crappy. And, and I was, I, I had a really bad case of Lyme and Epstein Barr and all that sort of stuff. And I'd get up and I'd walk to the bathroom and say, now, why did I come here? And I'd have to go back to the bedroom to figure out why I went to the bathroom. Oh, I was going to brush my teeth. So trauma distorts right, us. Right, right. the myelin sheaths in our brain. The antidote is to find humor, to find a modicum of joy. And I'll share a story with you. I worked once with an, an elderly man who had lived through Auschwitz. And we were talking, and his wife says something about Oif. She goes, yeah, Oif, he doesn't love anything. I said, Oif, there's got to be something in your life that brings you joy. Nothing brings me joy. And I said, really? Are you sure about that? And his wife pops up, and she goes, Oif, you sit in the jacuzzi and the sauna. Stop it. (laughs) smile. And in that moment... He broke into a grin and he smiled because he found his one right, thing. Right, right. And one, if you light one candle and someone lights, the, you light another candle, that's two, mm-hmm. four, eight, 16, and 32. And so the exponential shift from the profound grief that you can't get out of bed in the morning, if you can find one thing that you can nurture that one thing can change your life. And for me, it was one step at a time, you know, 10 steps forward, eight steps back. 
and yet I found a purpose in my life was to share the treasures that I got out of basically, I'd say the first, definitely the first 30 years of my life. When I left my first husband at, I think I was 34, um, I began to know what it was like to live free of suppression and uh, being spoken down to. Mm -hmm. And he, he wasn't physical until the end when his bipolarness just snapped him. And yet here's a man that I trusted and loved with all my heart. And my daughter to this day will say, how can you say you love that man after what he really? did? Really? It said, honey, I don't love what he did. I love the being that he was. He's no longer the man that he was. When I married him, we were both incredible together. The life caught up with him, the things he'd done abroad and overseas, it was his trauma. And he, it popped him. So she do not much care for her dad, but she knows that I love her father. I don't love what he's done to me and, and the incredible things he's, he's attempted to do. I'm certifiably saying he took me you know, to court saying that I was mentally ill. I came out as sane as, as they come. And then I insisted he have one and he came back and was sexually neurotic. And still my daughter is 40. She's incredibly well adjusted. I didn't see her for many, many years. And she has her own life. And I have to not see her as a little girl anymore. I have right. To see phenomenal young woman who has done her own trauma work. And that's the gift I gave her as a child. I gave her a relationship with God. I was working with a suicidal man one time who called me after I'd done a speech night before I took my car. He said, I, I just want to tell somebody where to find the body. I said, what? I didn't really know who he was. He gave me his name. I said, you put that, you had a shotgun. You put that darn thing done. You get out here. And if you still want to shoot yourself when you're done, good on you. So he came out to my retreat. <laughs> my daughter's five years old. Right? She's got a high reading level. She's in the kitchen. She goes, mommy, how do you spell fear? I said, ear, f Oh, I got it, Mom. I said, you writing Mommy a letter? Nope, I'm writing B-O-B -B a letter. This was the guy's name. Mm. She skips into the living room with this folded note, puts it in his hand. Now, he's sitting, hands crossed, legs crossed, in a fully un unwilling position. He opens this little thing that she wrote him with pictures, and it says, Dear Bob, when you have fear, sit and talk to it. Don't push it away. Love mushy. She goes outside to play, right? He's sobbing like a baby. Amazing. Out of the mouth of babes. No kidding. Found wisdom. And she was like that, you know, until she was 12 when she kind of disappeared from my life. But she had that wisdom. And she used that wisdom that she got from her mama to carry her through the times with her dad. Even though I was totally traumatized and I didn't remember it, I was still a good mom in spite of what he said. I taught her to love. I taught her about God. So even though she had to deal with a lot, she's a very well-adjusted young woman, and I'm so proud of her. When they say the sins of the parents are visited on the children, it's not what they mean. A sin means you miss the bullseye of an archery target. And we have our traumas, and they're passed on in our DNA and our RNA and through the but the good news is, and this, if, if our listeners hear nothing, it's that anything can be healed. You, you're not going to, 
you know, walk away from it not knowing that you've been wounded. That's for sure. You have that your whole life. But when you find the little spark of the one thing that you can hold on to, the sun came up today. Oh, my God, I read this incredible piece of poetry. Oh, I listened to Carol Graham. This woman had it rough. She had it rough. Maybe I can overcome this and use it. But there's a natural stage where you're in the pit of victimhood. I don't know anybody that has massive trauma that doesn't hit bottom. Right. The question is, are we going to get the ladder up and climb out? That's a perfect way to stop before our break. The question is, are we going to pick the ladder up and walk out? I love that. Thank you. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want you to talk about your book, The Grace of Love, and also any other books that you might want to share with our audience. This has definitely been intense, to say the least, but in a good way. And you have shared many nuggets, nuggets of wisdom And I think we need to have our listeners listen to this twice and write some of those down because you have shared so much value here. And I appreciate that. We'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Lynn has shared so many phenomenal nuggets of wisdom already on this broadcast today, and I thank her for being here. I would like her now, if you would please, Dr. Lynn, to share your book and whatever other book you would like to share, as well as The Grace of Love. Oh, thank you so much. I would love to share three three of the books. I've written quite a few books, mostly to help people heal from trauma and grief. And of course, it came out of my own stuff. So I'll, I'll go, I'll end with the grace of love. But I, at Thanksgiving in about 2014, I had Thanksgiving dinner with a friend. My husband had been gone at that point for seven years. This is James. He was number three. Uh, he was a chaplain at UCLA, and I met him by almost running him over. He was going to the same storytelling workshop I was. He forgot his his uh, wallet in the taxi, and he stepped in front of my car. The the oh my word, my life. So my book Soul Lift, I wrote because after Thanksgiving di- dinner, I was instructed inwardly to go home and write a book, and it needed to be done by December thirty first. So that was Thanksgiving to the end of December. So the prologue starts like this. My red, my red Chevy van and I almost ran them over. We didn't know it then, but we were on a crash course with destiny that collided on our way to a storytelling workshop. He'd reached the front door of the hotel and he realized he'd left his wallet in a taxi. He stepped off the curb and into my life. We met upstairs a few moments later when the uh-huh. Asked us to introduce ourselves. I stuck my hand out and said, hi, I'm Lynn Morell, the lady that almost ran you over. And it's a heck of a way to meet the husband. (laughs) 
And it was number three. And he, <laughs> I loved husband number one until he went crazy. I still loved who he was. I loved husband number two who perished in a crash. James was husband number three. And I like to laugh and say I averaged 11 or 12 years between husbands. I don't think <laughs> So soulless is open to any page. Like I just, I just flipped it, and then I came to one called "Fear and the Forest of Forgetting," and they're little. They're like one page, Bridging Two. Oh, okay. Geniusly lives clues. It's so sweet. It was a bestseller for a while on Amazon. So that I wrote in 2014. Now the the next one I wrote was while James was alive. The idea was seeded. So in in 2007. I was having breakfast with him, and I said, honey, I wonder what a puddle of leaves is. He goes, well, go write it down. And I went in my office, and I, and I wrote down, hmm, puddle of leaves, uh, bile ducts, bile ducts, viaducts, and I just wrote all this stuff down. Forgot about it, started it, and put it away after he died. Until um, this was, when did I publish this one? I think this one is hmm, 2020. And it's called Beyond Lovelyville, and it's a parable of self-awareness and rising above trauma. This book was also a bestseller on Amazon. It's very short. It's very sweet. And it's, it's through the eyes of frogs and creatures that live on a pond. The working title is Puddle of Leaves mm. because the, one of the protagonists lives in a puddle of leaves that he's turned into his house. And he's a little mini-man. He's about two inches high, and he's a detective. <laughs> and it came beyond Lovelyville because the other creatures lived in a place called Lovelyville that was no longer lovely. And for those of us that have had traumas, sometimes life is lovely and then all of a sudden it's not. And so this is how to get out of it. And then The Grace of Love, which is the most recent one, it came out this year, is the unedited love letters and emails between James and I. He's the one I almost ran over. And he was the most amazing human being I had ever met. He survived 14 surgeries by the time he was 21. Oh, my goodness. And a total of three years in a body cast and suffered from pain his entire life. So when I ran this dude over almost, he's thinking, oh, my God, I hope I never see that woman again. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> To finding out when we were asked to introduce ourselves, he was seated in front of me, and he was at the front row, and that's when I said, hey, my name's Lynn Morell. I almost ran you over. We were neighbors. He lived around the corner from me. So I gave him a ride home. He calls me up and says, um, would you like to go for coffee? Coffee, and it became the whole day. And his deepest desire was to be married, but because of his birth defect, he never thought anybody would marry him. And he was intellectually a giant. He was as compassionate with his patients because he knew what hell was. He walked with a cane, and he worked as a cancer oncology chaplain at UCLA. He helped thousands of people. PBS did a story on us. Discovery Channel did a story. Someone else, private, you know, um, thing that they were using in high schools. So we actually became sort of famous. The Grace of Love, though, is a chronicle of our eight years together. And our relationship was built on transparency, honesty. And, and uh, at the back of the book, one of, one of my friends said, um, 
an intimate revealing book at the depths of love expressed in two souls uniting. Kudos to Dr. Lin for the courage to explore and show the depth of connection. That's what the grace of love is about. We were two wounded people working on himself. He had worked on himself for 15 years. He wanted desperately to be married, but he didn't think he anybody would see him. Uh-huh. I saw who he was. I thought, oh my God, this man is incredible. And his work with patience and his compassion, but he touched so many lives. And our relationship was one of joy and laughter. And that was James and my relationship until the day he died. And the in, you know the, some of the chapters are very interesting because, like every marriage, there were there were eight years, and each chapter is a year. So 1999 was we met. 2000, still the honeymoon. You're my perfect fit. 2001, peace, be still. 2002, the elephant in the room and barking dogs. Now, barking dogs. <laughs> Are those little voices in our head that say yada 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 yada? Sometimes it's a chihuahua, sometimes a German Shepherd, but they're not real. They're what I call the negative polarity or expression. And when we're in grief, that little sucker takes over, uh-huh. and it, it just—it's just like a weed that just keeps growing. So we looked at the big elephant in our room, both of us, and we didn't know how to handle it. But we acknowledged it was there. And then so 2003 was shaken but sure. We had addressed our elephants. We'd addressed our barking dogs. Then 2004 was courage, challenges, and commitment. And and he had some health challenges then. 2005 was the tunnel of love, freedom, family, and fun. Oh, my God. We took weekends in the desert because the men were hot springs, made him pain-free in the in the water. And then 2007 was love is all that is. That was his year of passing. He was hit by an elevator that was run amok with no sensors, and pretty much he got trashed. He didn't remember what happened, but he said an angel caught him. And he had a closed brain injury. So for the last eight months of his life, he was in chronic pain. And yet he still went to work for his patience. Mm. He died, you know, of a drug overdose. The hospital administered, quote, in error. Um, My word. And they, they lost everything, the medical records. Now, there was a time where my anger surfaced, and I made it for me, not against me, not about the hospital. I reconciled it that he was in so much pain, it was more like a mercy killing. Mm. So he died as he lived, ministering to people, the day he passed away, the entire floor was so upset that the social worker asked if I would come in and dress all the patients. They were all in, in the sitting room. Oh. And they shared, and, and they shared with me that when you walked through the doors, the nurse said, when you the elevator door opened, he was closest to the nurse's station. He would sit up in bed, and he'd been moaning in bed all day long. Second the door, he knew it was you. He was sitting on the side of the bed. Hi, honey. You know, and and the people said that when we walked up and down the hall, they wished their deepest wishes they could be in a relationship like what we had because we exuded such, such grace. So I call this the grace of love because one of his first notes he wrote to me, <clears throat> which is the cover of the book, Lynn, having you as my wife 
makes my whole life a glorious valley of flowers. Love, James. And the very last thing that he really said to me, your grace carries me at every turn. Thank you for taking so much, such good care of me. Um, and then I said, hang in there, my dear husband. God will reign triumphant. Imagine the wonder that awaits us both. <clears throat> you are the center of my garden of love. And then his email to me <clears throat> was, you are loved by me. You and God are my rock right now, and I cling to you with all my might. I love you so much. And so then he asked me how I'd handle his death. We all know when we're going to die sooner or later. And I said, I'll be fine. I'll be totally fine. Not only that, he said to me, I want you to get married again. I said, James <laughs> Putney, no. I said, I have no need to be married again. You are husband number three. And he goes, he says, but I don't want you to grieve. I said, look, I know how to grieve. I've lost two husbands, remember? I dealt with David when he died. I dealt with losing Peter, who's still alive, but he died to me. And I'll get over it. And he just was like a dog with a bone. <laughs> and I finally said, why are you bugging me that I have to get married? He goes, oh, honey. I want you to marry a man that loves you as much as I do and gives you everything I can't. And he was a chaplain on chaplain's pay. And he wanted more than anything to buy me a house in the country. Now, that's California. There's no way. Mm -hmm. So he, was, he passed away. Maybe I should write a goal that I have a, a boyfriend or a husband. Now, this is like 12, 12 years and um, I wrote a goal, dear God, thank you for bringing me a man who's monogamous, loves me wonderfully. And, and this whole requisition, the same one I had for James before I met him. And so Paul and I are happily married. So that's the happy ending. That's the grace of love. When we rise above the things that would run us over and have run us over and have changed our life forever, you know, I have a friend who was in the Boston Marathon bombing. She was standing next to the bomber. And when he put his backpack down, she had a sudden urge to walk up to watch the runners. That 15 feet difference saved her life. And together we'll be doing a documentary and a oh, study veterans to see if the kind of work that I do and four other of my contemporaries do. We all have our own method to help people heal from trauma, which is not reliving it. Um, we're going to be doing that study once we get the funding, which looks like it might be on the way. Oh, she opened this. Her, her life was shattered. Now she went from being a financial person to making documentaries. <laughs> and she, she was in the pit for over a year to recover from that, the injuries from the bomb. And so each of us has a bomb that goes off in our life. Sooner or later, you can't get through life without a trauma. And there's no trauma that's too small because if it upsets you, it's real. And if it upsets you, if you got curious about it, said, I wonder what that's about. And you let yourself feel whatever it is, even if you write it down. If you go to my website, you know, you can you can get tons of podcasts and stuff for free. But if you get curious about it. Then your bigger than you self can take that trauma and turn it from a trauma to a treasure. I wouldn't change what I do for for anything. And I've been, I've been at trauma since 
dealing with it with people as a business since 1984. And I was doing it before then. I mean, people that showed up in my life, I always knew how to listen. And for all of our listeners, the grace of love is inside of us. It's an internal job. And while my my journey with James was external, we had both come to terms with our trauma and we used our marriage. We made a commitment that every time we were upset with each other, we would use it to grow more in love. And I invite our listeners today to take whatever fits and use it for you so that you can become a change agent and light the candle for somebody else. Well, that was a tremendous summary. I was going to ask what message you wanted to share with the audience, but there's no need to ask because you have already done that, and I thank you. And thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. This has been amazing, and thank you for being on Never Ever give up hope thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option carol loves your comments and will respond to each one so please subscribe and review this podcast A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.